Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of 100 Fathoms Under by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 15, The Drums of Quangara. Is anyone hurt? Hartson Brandt called. No one was, although a few pieces of shrapnel had hissed through the air above them. They got to their feet as the trawler got underway. Turk doesn't want to be too close to land, it looks like. Rick said. Chana grinned. Turk is afraid if he stays close, maybe the natives will swim out to visit. Scotty held up a warning hand. Listen. There was the sound of many people crashing through the jungle foliage, and the sound was coming toward them. They picked up Otera's cot and carried it back to the tent, then faced the jungle, waiting. In a moment there were outraged cries, but no native showed himself. They ran at the first explosion, Gordon guessed. Now they're just finding out that the dragon god has been wrecked. Rick waited tensely, but although the shouts increased as the natives cried out their grief and rage, he saw none of them. Presently the noise died away, and the jungle grew quiet again, but not for long. Far inland, a rhythmic booming began. It was picked up from somewhere to the south, and it echoed and re-echoed until the whole island seemed to throb. It's coming closer, Scotty said. Sounds like they have two or three drums in different places. They're bringing them together. Here. From the east, the roll of thunder crashed in answer to the ceremonial drums. Even nature is helping out, Zircon said. Rick looked up at a sky dark with heavy clouds. It was already twilight, much earlier than usual because of the growing storm. The throbbing drums reached a point several hundred feet away from the peninsula and came no closer. But now their deep, booming rhythm was augmented by a chant that began on a low note and gradually climbed the scale until it beat against the eardrums almost painfully. They're getting up steam, Gordon said, probably working themselves to a frenzy on palm wine and religious ceremony. They'll need to be plenty worked up before they break that taboo, but they'll do it before the night is over. And we've got nothing to stop them, Rick said. He could visualize savage brown men pouring over the camp in an irresistible tide, spears rising and falling. Gentlemen... Hartson Brandt said quietly, We've long boasted that the mind always wins over force. Now I think that we need to prove it. We must put our minds to work and create a weapon. Not the usual sort of weapon, perhaps. Not a weapon of violence. A weapon of science, Rick exclaimed. But what? Chada laughed. 
It would be something, would it not? It would sound good at home if maybe the papers had to say, famous men of science meet match in ig igno ignorant natives. The others laughed with him, and Zircon clapped a big hand on the Hindu boy's shoulder. We've been in tight spots before, haven't we? I propose we start by making an inventory of everything we got in the camp. Something maybe will suggest itself, Gordon said. Good idea, Hartzenbrandt agreed. Rick, you and Scotty make a list of everything in the tents. Hobart and I will look through the power equipment. Chada can help Gordon look through the supply boxes. Don't miss anything, Gordon warned. You never know what might suggest something. The party hurried to the appointed places and rapidly went through their belongings and camping equipment. Rick took notes as Scotty dictated, and all the while he was conscious of the steady, ominous beat of the Quangara drums. Sometimes the chanting rose to a shouting crescendo that throbbed in waves against his ears. They took their list out to where Hartson Brandt and Hobart Zircon waited, and in a moment Gordon and Chada joined them. Rick looked from the jungle to the cloudy sky, and then out to where the trawler rode serenely 1,000 feet offshore. The trawler lights twinkled like inviting beacons. They were the only lights. The camp was growing indistinct in the waning light, and the black wall of the jungle seemed to press closer. Hartson Brandt shot a flashlight on the paper he held. I'll read our list first. We have four batteries, fully charged, one gasoline-operated battery charger, one five-gallon tin of gasoline, one empty tin, about a hundred feet of heavy wire, one converter, one set of tools, one water bag with ten gallons of water. The list Rick and Scotty had compiled was mostly clothes and personal stuff. This included two jackknives, assorted clothing, two tents with poles and steel pegs, six cots with pads and mosquito nets, four flashlights, one sledgehammer, one box of cartridges for Scotty's rifle. Gordon and Chada reported one case of rations badly depleted, one electric cooking unit, one electric percolator, two first aid and medicine kits, a pressure spray gun and a supply of powdered DDT, unused, one can of surplus fluoride powder, one ultraviolet sterilizer, both unused. How about shocking? Scotty asked. We could replace the taboo wire with something that carried an electric charge. Not practical, Zircon said, for two reasons. We haven't enough wire to be thorough, and if they started to rush us, only the first few would be shocked. The weight of the bodies would break the wire down. No, that's not what we're looking for, Scotty. I think we need something that'll play on their superstitious fears. That's what I think, Gordon agreed. Even if they worked up to a pitch where they'll violate the taboo, they're still going to be afraid. We got to play on that fear. Rick had been thinking of an incident during the moon rocket experiment. The paint used by the enemy gang to keep in touch with a traitor on the Spindrift Island staff by means of a sign on an old barn visible from the tidal flats had been fluorescent. Our dog Dismal got into the paint, Rick said aloud. Then under Barbie's ultraviolet sunlamp, he glowed blue. And scared Barbie half to death, Scotty added. Golly, Rick, you got something there. Hold it, Hartsabrand ordered. 
Before we say any more, let's think about Rick's suggestion. We have fluoride powder and we have the ultraviolet sterilizer, but how do we use them? Rick sat down on the ground, his legs tucked under him. He stared at the lights on the trawler and tried hard to concentrate. Behind him were the drums throbbing endlessly. The rhythm beat around him like a tangible force, making it hard to think. If the natives broke the taboo, they would be punished. But punished with fluoride powder? All right, let's hear your ideas, Hartzett Brandt said. Zircon spoke up, voice booming out over the sound of the drums. Could we cover ourselves with the powder, then fluoresce with the aid of the sterilizer lamp? The natives would then be confronted with a group of ghostly figures. Gordon had an objection to this. They'll know it's us. I doubt we could convince them that we suddenly turned into ghosts. They've had dealings with white men before. No. It has to be something more spectacular than that, Hartson Brandt agreed. Whatever it is, it should happen to them. They'll be the ones who are breaking the taboo, Rick offered. And they're going to break it soon, Scotty said, peering at the dark jungle. Wish I could get a look at what's going on. I also, Chada added, Hartson Brandt said. No, boys, we'll know soon enough what's going on. I'm sure you could sneak over and look, but it would be a pointless risk. It should happen to them, Gordon mused, echoing Rick's words. But how can we make them fluoresce? Well, we better think of something soon, Scotty pleaded. Maybe we could spray them with bug stuff. Kill them like mosquitoes, Chada suggested. Zircon bellowed. Chada, you're a genius. Not the DDT. We'll fill the spray gun with fluoride. Oh, yeah, Rick exclaimed. That'll blow the powder for yards. But how do we get it on them? What color will the powder be under ultraviolet? Hartson Brand asked. It'll be a yellow-green. I've seen pieces of mineral fluoride under ultraviolet, Gordon replied. It ain't a pretty color. A drop of rain fell on Rick's nose. He looked up at the dark sky, but could only make out an occasional gleam of dying daylight. The camp was entirely dark now. It's starting to rain. Even the weather is against us, he said. Maybe not. Rain will make that powder stick better, won't it? The throbbing of the drums was getting faster, building up to a climax. The chanting of the natives kept pace, a low undertone of menace. We are going to get company very soon. Chada said. Please think quick. Gordon, get the sterilizer, Hartson Brandt directed. Break open the reflector so it'll throw as wide a beam as possible. Hobart, help me remove those bulbs. We want no lights when we turn the power on. Rick, Scotty, get the spray gun and the fluoride powder. And the tooth powder, Gordon added. In a moment, the various parts of their desperate plan were assembled. Gordon took pliers from the toolbox and wrenched the chrome-plated reflector loose, spreading it wide so that the tubular ultraviolet bulb would have the widest possible angle. There had been so few insects in camp that the spray gun had never been filled. Rick and Scotty took off the top and were about to pour in the fluoride powder when Gordon stopped them. Tooth powder first. We'll use a smaller concentration on the jungle before they arrive. Chada helped collect the half-dozen cans of powder in the jar of surplus mixture. 
They were emptied into the spray gun, and the top replaced. Then Scotty began pumping up pressure. When the air pressure was great enough, Rick swung the tank to his back and slipped into the harness. Then, with Scotty and Chada beside him, he hurried to the edge of the jungle. Wait a second, Scotty said. He slipped into the woods. Rick waited until he returned. No natives nearby, he reported. Rick asked curiously. Suppose you've met one. Well, then I'd run like crazy, Scotty replied. Go ahead, start spraying. Rick grinned as he pressed the trigger that shot a spray of powder into the air. Scotty ran from fights the way cats run from catnip. Go in more, Chada suggested. Rick ducked under the taboo string and moved ten feet into the jungle. The leaves and fronds were always damp because the sunlight never reached to the jungle floor through the dense growth. He sprayed the area well, moving back and forth across the end of the peninsula until the tooth powder was exhausted and the spray gun was just blowing air. Then they hurried back to where the scientists were at work. His father, Zircon, and Gordon had torn down the camp lighting system and patched the wires together to form a long extension. Then they spliced the extension to the cord of the ultraviolet lamp and then carried the lamp toward the jungle. There was some discussion as to where to put it, and the scientists knelt measuring angles. It was finally placed about 40 feet from the jungle's edge. The radiation would be less on the edges, but that couldn't be helped. No one had spoken aloud of how the natives were to be coated with the powder, but they all knew there was only one way, and that was to spray them as they approached. Rick looked up at the sky again. Occasional raindrops struck him, but it hadn't started raining hard as yet. It had better, he thought. Just a few raindrops wouldn't wet the natives enough so that the powder would stick to them. They'll get some powder on them as they push through the jungle, he said, but we really ought to dose a few of them. I would do that, Chada offered. Nothing doing, Scotty said flatly. I'm going to do it. We will draw lots, Hartson Brandt stated firmly. Rick stepped to his father's side. Not this time, Dad. Scotty, Chada, and I will draw lots. We're better at climbing trees, and we can run a lot faster if we have to. Rick is right, sir. We'll make a three-way draw, Scotty said. It makes sense. Rick pleaded. You and Professor Gordon can watch the power supply in the lamp, and Professor Zircon can stand by to guard you in case they break through. He's the biggest and strongest. All right, Hartson Brandt agreed. We do not need to draw straws, Chada suggested. We ought three go. I'm for that. One guy alone in the woods wouldn't have a chance, but three of us might be able to fight our way out if anything happens. All right, it's settled then. Rick said quickly. What do we use for weapons? Wrenches from the kit, Gordon offered. I know something better, Hobart Zircon said. Those steel tent stakes. Let's hurry. We've got to get set before they come, Rick said. He trod to the tent and pried out a stake. They were 18 inches long, tapering to a point at the bottom. Toward the top, they had little metal hooks sticking out to hold the tent ropes. Rick hefted his. Held by the pointed end, it made a wicked club. He thrust it into his belt and then carried the spray gun to where the extra can of fluoride powder waited. Scotty helped him pour the powder in and pumped up the pressure. Then Rick swung the tank to his back once more and secured the harness firmly. 
The rain was coming down in an increasing pattern of drops now, but it would have to rain harder before much penetrated the jungle foliage. He hurried to the ultraviolet lamp where the scientists had gathered. All of them had tent stakes tucked into their belts. Scotty had two. One to throw, he explained. They shook hands all around, and then Scotty led the way into the jungle. Let's see if we can find a good-sized tree, he said. Rick didn't see how you could locate anything. The jungle was pitch black. He blundered into palm fronds and hanging vines and once ran into a spider web that got caught across his face and eyes. He clawed the thing away and hurried after Scotty. Chata was right up on his heels. This'll do, Scotty whispered. Come on, up with you, Chata. Then Rick. By some miracle of jungle sense, Scotty had found a glade where it was comparatively clear. A tree with spreading branches was in the center of the glade, but the branches were high above the ground. Chata went up the trunk like a dark monkey. Rick followed, going more by feel than sight. His eyes were of little use in the almost total darkness. There is a big branch up here, Chata said from above him. There is a clear space all the way to the ground. You get up here, Rick. Rick struggled out along the branch, tank impeding him by catching onto smaller branches and leaves. Finally, he got settled, about six feet out from the trunk, legs dangling, back resting against a thick branch that thrust up at an odd angle. He took the nozzle of the spray gun from its clamp and got it ready. The rhythm of the drums seemed to swirl around them, rising from the ground like mist. Were the natives coming? Had the drums grown louder? We forgot to arrange a signal for them to turn on the UV lamp, Rick whispered. Not forget, Chata corrected. While you and Scotty were filling the tank, I fixed it with Sahib Brandt. When many natives go below, I give the call of Shiva. It tells others that they come, and maybe it scares the natives a little, I think. They'll come this way, Scotty said quietly. There's a trail that passes under the tree. How can you tell? Rick asked. It's a path. Nothing is growing on it. We'd better keep quiet now. I think they're going to be coming soon. Hear that chanting? The voices had risen to a screaming crescendo and they were getting louder. What's the call of Shiva? Rick whispered to Chada. Shiva is a Hindu god called a destroyer. Not nice, you see. Rick fell silent again. The patter of rain on the leaves overhead was a soft undertone to the chanting and the drums. Drops fell on his shoulders and in his hair. Good, it was finally raining harder. Overhead, lightning flashed and the jungle was lit up in blue fire for an instant. Rick saw Scotty's face beside him and saw they were on a thick limb about fifteen feet above the ground. Under them was a well-defined path through the forest growth. Thunder roared in the wake of the lightning drowning out the drums. On the heels of the reverberations came the rain now, heavy. Inland the drums throbbed louder, and the chanting suddenly broke into rising screams and yells. Scotty stiffened and put a hand on Rick's shoulder. They're coming. Rick tensed, the nozzle trigger under his finger. He heard a crashing in the underbrush coming nearer, and still nearer. The lightning flashed again, and he had a quick view of wet brown bodies, gleaming spear points. They were coming, and they were under him. 
His fingers squeezed, and the hiss of the pressure tank mingled with the raindrops. He moved the nozzle in wide sweeps, spreading the powder wide. From beside him, spine-chilling in its terrible weirdness, a long, wailing cry quavered, rising and falling in a cadence of terror. It was the call of Shiva. Chapter 16 A Two-Man Boarding Party The rushing natives hesitated as Chanda's weird cry rang through the wet jungle. Then, as the first of them reached the taboo line, the scientist threw power into the ultraviolet lamp. Even to Rick, who was watching for it, the effect was indescribably ghastly. The jungle lit up. Strange blotches of color like yellow-green fire were everywhere. The fire dripped from the leaves onto the heads of the natives. Those who had passed directly under Rick were a solid mass of yellow-green from head to shoulders, and all of them were blotched with the stuff from where wet bodies had brushed against the foliage. For an instant the natives were silent, shocked into stillness by the thing that had befallen them. Then Chada's cry rang out again, followed from below by horrified gasps. From the edge of the jungle, a voice babbled in native language. It rose to a scream of pure fear that lifted the hair on Rick's head. The hesitating natives broke and ran as though the dragon god himself had come to life. They ran in blind terror, crashing into trees, entangling themselves in vines, and as they ran, they dropped their spears and clubs. Only when they passed beyond the range of the penetrating ultraviolet did their bodies cease to glow. But behind them, the jungle still burned with yellow-green fire. The boys waited until the last cries had died away toward the south of the island. Then Scotty said, Let's get out of this. I have an idea. As one, they swung off the limb, hung by their hands, and dropped to the spongy earth. They trotted out of the jungle and found the scientists waiting. The ultraviolet lamp had been switched off, but the fluorescent glow was fading slowly. All three of the boys were coated with the powder. A fine look of bunch you are, Gordon greeted them happily. Did you wash in the stuff? That was some performance, Hartson Brandt said, putting his arm around Rick's shoulder. Chada, did that awful yell come from you? Zircon boomed. Pretty good, I think, Chada grinned. I scared myself almost. Scotty was waiting impatiently. Listen, it's now or never. You think they saw the fluorescence from the ship? No, Hartson Brandt said. It's raining hard and visibility is very poor. Look, you can barely make out the lights aboard. Good, Scotty said. But they must have heard the racket and you know what they'll be thinking. Yeah, that we're all dead. If only we could... The others got the idea instantly. We can, Zircon said decisively. Let's make our plans quickly. We'll need some sort of diversion, Hartson Brandt said thoughtfully. They'll be on deck, probably. If we had some way of making sure, they'd all run to one side of the ship. A fire! Chana exclaimed. Explosion! Rick said the same breath. The gasoline! That's it, Gordon said quickly. We can pour a little gas into the empty tin. By the time we're ready, it will have vaporized enough to explode. We're going to need a fuse for that. 
Scotty added. Sure, Rick was ready with the answer. That box of cartridges. We can break them open and lay a powder trail. If we put up a tarpaulin, it won't get wet. Who's going to go? Scotty asked. The best swimmers, Hartson Brandt said. Rick, Scotty, Zircon, and myself. What about me? Gordon demanded hotly. I can make it to the boat. Yes, but you know you're not as much at ease in the water as the rest of us, John, and we'll need you here to set off the explosion. Chada has just learned to swim, so he's automatically eliminated. Unhappily, yes, Chada said sadly. Oterra is in no condition to swim, Hartzenbrand continued. Incidentally, boys, he was the one who started the rout. Did you hear him screaming? He yelled that the dragon god was sending green fire to burn them up because the taboo had been broken. Well, I'll be doggone, Rick exclaimed. Where is he? Back in bed. We let him up just long enough to do his bit. He's still pretty weak. Keep your voices down, Zircon cautioned. I doubt they can hear us, but why take chances? The four swimmers stripped to their shorts, then put their belts back on. Into the belts, they tucked steel tent stakes. Then they walked down to the waterfront and stared out to where the trawler's lights shone dimly through the rain. How long? Hartson Brent asked. Scotty estimated the distance. Twenty minutes will give us plenty of time. I think so, too, Rick agreed. Zircon said, Rick, your watch is waterproof, isn't it? Mine, too. And we both have luminous dials. You stick with your father. Scotty, come with me. I suggest we arrive from both sides just after the pilot house. Rick considered this. From the looks, the trawler was riding stern to the island, facing into the swell. She wasn't anchored because it was too deep out there. Probably Turk was keeping just enough way on her to hold position. There'd be one man at the wheel, and he wouldn't see them if they landed just behind the pilot house. The explosion would bring the others to the stern to see what was happening. Gordon joined them. I poured just enough gasoline into the empty can to vaporize. We'll set both cans off, however. The first will explode and the second one will burn. How do we time it? He checked his watch with Rick's and Zircon's. All right. The second hands aren't exactly together, so we'll keep close watch. Rick, you and Hartson will board at 15 minutes, 10 seconds past the hour by your watch. Hobart, it'll be 15 and 32 by your watch. They shook hands all around. Chada appeared and said mournfully, I will start practice swimming three hours a day from now on, you bet. Rick gave him a strained grin. You can start tomorrow. We'll go out in single file, Hartson Brand said. The scientist walked into the water. Rick gave him a ten-foot start and then followed. Behind came Scotty and then Zircon. It was easy swimming in the protected waters behind the reef. Outside there would be a swell running, but it was not a bad one. Rick didn't worry at all about the swim. The worst moment would come when they neared the side of the ship. If anyone aboard saw them, a few well-placed shots would finish the affair. He thought of the sharks that would certainly be outside the reef. They wouldn't bother the swimmers. They would stay well away. In fact, he had learned that sharks were cowards. 
But let one of the swimmers be wounded, and the scent of blood would bring the sharks in a ravenous pack. They neared the reef, and he saw the passage, dark between the ends of coral where the sea washed in white foam. His father kept to the middle of the passage, and Rick followed, swimming easily. He lifted his head and saw the trawler's lights more distinctly. She was riding the swell about 300 yards beyond the reef. But unless someone aboard decided to turn on a searchlight, they wouldn't be seen. He had trouble seeing his father's dark head only a few feet ahead of him. When they were well outside the reef, Hartz and Brandt waited for the others to come up to him. They huddled together, treading water in the swell as the scientist gave them instructions. We separate here he whispered. Rick and I to port. Hobart and Scotty to starboard. Circle wide in case they have a lookout. Stay in the darkness until the time comes. Then sprint to the side. Good luck. Good luck, the others whispered. Rick followed as his father angled off to the left. After a few minutes, he lifted his head and looked for Zircon and Scotty. They were out of sight. He settled down to a long swim. The route led them away from the trawler and then back toward the lights in a wide circle. Rick could see the lights winking through the rain, but he could make out no other features. And with the hiss of the rain striking the water, even the sound of the engines was muffled. He held his watch close to his eyes and wiped the crystal. It was twelve minutes past the hour. He increased his stroke and came up to his father. Three more minutes, he whispered. We'll start in. The scientist whispered back. His face was a white blur, but Rick thought that he smiled. Are you frightened, son? Rick grinned back. Scared stiff, he answered with perfect truth. But he knew from past experience that his fright would vanish in the heat of the fight. Scotty was like that, too. He'd always told Rick that the minutes before the battle were the worst. Don't pull any punches, Mr. Brandt warned in a whisper. We can't afford to lose. Tap me on the shoulder when we've exactly one minute. No more talking. He squeezed Rick's shoulder, then resumed swimming, straight for the side of the trawler. Rick followed, careful not to splash as they neared the ship. He could make out details now. The high bulk of the pilot house and the rest of the superstructure. The gleam of light on the submobile. Once he thought he heard voices. They moved close enough so that Rick could finally see clearly. The ship was well lit, working lights aft. He could make out the figures there, and thought he recognized Turk's broad shoulders. He started to tread water as Hartz and Brandt stopped just outside the fan of light from the ship. He glanced at his watch and counted off the seconds, and then tapped his father on the shoulder. The scientist nodded. Rick loosened the tent stake in his belt a bit. When he glanced at his watch again, holding it close to his eyes, there were only 20 seconds remaining. He looked toward the dark shore and counted under his breath. His heart was pounding and nervousness was making him a little short of breath. An explosion split the night. Yellow flames shot high into the air. Hartson Brandt was face down in the water, his arms moving in a powerful crawl before Rick could get started. Then he put his head down and sprinted, going as fast as he could without splashing. The scientist gained the side of the ship, reached far up and caught hold, then pulled himself over the side. Rick was right behind him. He dropped to the deck as his father started aft, 
and then whirled suddenly as some instinct warned him. The sailor in the pilot house was looking right at him, his mouth open to yell.